I was laughing a few minutes ago talking to a few of you. I have determined, I am, um, uh, on Sunday mornings when I, when I wake up, I usually kind of spend a few moments just kind of coming to, I'm one of those, you know, some people wake up and they jump right out of bed, it takes me a few minutes. And so a lot of times on Sunday mornings I grab the phone because I'll fall asleep, I can't stay up late on Saturday nights, it just takes too much of a toll on me. So uh, I don't ever stay up to watch the end of all the football games on Saturday night as much as I'd like to. So I have to grab the phone to see how they, f- I'll record a lot of them so I can go back if it was a great ending, but I'll see who won. And I determined I really don't need to do that. I just need to come to church and see who's wearing their shirts. Uh, you all will clue me in because I see Ohio State this morning. I've seen um, Clemson shirts this morning, or at least Clemson orange. Maybe it's not a Clemson shirt. Don't see a lot of garnet and gold today. Um, you know, I've seen, I've seen Florida orange and blue. Um, but anyway, it's, it's um, you know, wear it proud regardless. Um, I'm not wearing Duke blue either, so I won't be wearing much of that this season, I can tell you that. Um, listen, let me, let me share something with you, a joy that we have. Um, in, the, in the gathering place, you may, not, may, may know, you may not, but we have a board and on that board, we have a lot of the, your family members, members of the church, extended family church members who are overseas, servicemen and women who we're praying for while they're serving. And we do lift that up. And I hope, Robert, I don't embarrass you, but I want to welcome back Robert McClure, who's been overseas serving for I don't know how long. So you can stand up. So, um, so. I know Tracy's very happy. I know he's happy. I know two kids that are very happy. So we welcome you back. Army, correct? Yes. So, um, and so we certainly celebrate that. And, we can, and, and it also is a chance for me to, to kind of remind you that that board's there. Take note because there's still uh, a lot of folks that want to continue. And even those who aren't on the board, but your family and friends and, and all our servicemen and women, we want to keep them in prayer. So, so that's a, a wonderful celebration this morning. So, Let's, uh, let's turn to our scripture. Luke chapter 16, uh, verses 1 through 9, the parable of Jesus. Interesting parable of Jesus we're going we're gonna to kind of contend with a little bit this morning. And you'll, you'll know what I mean if, if you've not heard this, or even if you have, maybe it'll jog some memories. But it's a parable of the shrewd manager. So let's hear these words this morning. It says, Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master has taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Brothers and sisters, we pray God's blessing here 
on the reading of his word. Let us pray. Lord, speak to our hearts and and our minds, our spirits today. Give us wisdom, give us insight into understanding your word and your teaching and your challenge for us. As we grow in faith, we bring ourselves to you and pray your blessing, your strength, and your power be made real. In Christ's holy name, amen. When I was a kid growing up in Jacksonville, Florida, um, usually once or twice a year, some of the, um, the mothers uh, in, in our kind of group of our carpool group, group of friends and, and um, you know, classmates, whatever, but some of the mothers would gather us up and they would take us hunting um, once or twice a year. Now, not hunting the way that we mostly associate with hunting. There was no firearms, there was no weapons, nothing lost to life, and we didn't sit in tree stands for hours. Um, rather, we would go hunting for the very elusive wild blackberry. I don't know how many of you have ever picked wild blackberries, but we would do that a couple times a year. It really wasn't hunting because the, the mothers knew where some of these you know, grew, and they'd take us to very, very targeted spots. But uh, it was one of those things we always enjoyed doing. But, but it always came at a cost. There was a price to pay for picking wild blackberries. Uh, I, I picked blackberries in my grandfather's berry farm. I've told you about his berry farm in, in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. And those were groomed, um, manicured, in, you know, berry farms that had a lot of the, um, the thistles. And, and in fact, they were probably thornless blackberries. In fact, I'm sure they were. But if you know anything about picking wild blackberries, very often they are not thornless bushes. And, and so you would, you would have to kind of contend with the, national, the shrubs and the bushes and the things you'd have to kind of push your way through. And then when you were picking the blackberries, you had to be aware that there were thorns and thistles on all those branches and on those leaves. And, and they'd hit, get you in the finger and they'd break off in your skin and they'd get your arms. I mean, you'd, you ever given a bath to an angry cat? You know? <laughs> That's kind of what you would, you would look like. But, but it was worth it because the berries were so good. It was worth the price. And, and, and I say that we picked them. We didn't really pick as much as we just ate. You know, it was kind of that thing. But, but it, was, it was the fact that in order to kind of get to the prize, get to the heart of why you were doing it, you just really had to deal with the fact that there were some, um, there were some thorns and thistles to be contended with. Now, we approach this parable in Luke chapter 16 parable of the shrewd manager and and I kind of think think of it in terms of of picking blackberries because we've got to contend with some some thorns and thistles in this story this is a a a tough story to kind of get to the to the good part if you will because there's a lot of things that are really really challenging for us about understanding this story the characters themselves are, are prickly the shrewd manager is a thorny kind of individual and the details present some some real challenges for us if you just hear the story on its entirety. In fact, when I read it, as I was preparing a few weeks ago and picking scriptures, and there's always three or four scriptures that I'll, I'll look through on any given Sunday, gospel reading, an a, a epistle, an Old Testament, maybe a psalm. I read this one first, and my initial reaction was, I'm not preaching that. I'm not preaching that story because I have no idea what to do with it. I just, normally I'll read and there'll be a, a line or a teaching or something. I'm like, yeah, that's what I can grab onto. I read this one. I was like, I, I'm not even sure why Jesus told this story. I, I have no idea why he told this story, at least at first. And so I was just going to, I was going to skip it. I was going to do something else, a little easier. 
And um, through a process I won't outline in detail to bore you, but I just kept coming back to it. I kept coming back to it. I kept feeling the Holy Spirit say, take this one on. Take this one on. Don't duck it. And so uh, sometimes in the course of the week, I'm not even sure why I do some of this stuff. And by the end of the sermon, you might not be sure why I picked this one. <laughs> I had somebody say to me the first service, they're like, you know, I think I'm more confused about that parable now than I was before. And I thought, that's not the, the ringing endorsement of a sermon that I generally look for. But, but let's try to make some sense of this story because as I read it, you know, if you read it, again, I say this often through fresh eyes, you keep waiting for the part where this manager gets his comeuppance. That, that he's called to accountability that Jesus says, and this is the judgment he receives for what is really just dishonest behavior. And yet it never happens. If, if anything else, he's kind of the, the focus of the story. He's the example of the story. And I go, wow, that's just not, not very Jesus-like, it seems like. So, so let's start to try to understand what's happening here because this is the word of God. There's, there's truth here. Um, Jesus was savvy and smart, and he knew how to contextualize stories. So there's a point. So let's try to find what it is. And I think starting, we have to recognize what's happening around Jesus to begin to understand the story, to begin to understand the why behind the story. As we know, the Gospels are accounts of life happenings. You know, they're not, they're not Jesus sitting down and penning a, a sermon or a teaching parable. There are things that that happened very naturally, very organically. He would encounter people in circumstances and situations, and he would teach based on what was happening around him, whether it be on a, on a hillside or whether it be in the streets of the city among the, the poor and the, and the crippled, whether it was, um, you know, in somebody's home. He, he taught based on this context. And so the immediate circle around Jesus was almost always those disciples, those 12 disciples, maybe a few others that were, were part of that regular entourage, if you will, the inner circle. And that's what the, the parable begins. Jesus was teaching his disciples. But there's also always this group on the fringe around Jesus. Now, there's more than just two groups. But there, there's a fringe, fringe group that's always there. They're always present. Sometimes they, they come to the surface, but they're always keeping an eye on Jesus. And we know that group as the Pharisees. The Pharisees, yeah, they're, they're keeping up because Jesus is a teacher of the Torah, the law. They're teachers of the law, and they want to make sure he's doing it right. They always want to make sure he's doing it right. Most of the time, he's not, and they're always looking for opportunities to trip him up, to trap him, to, to undermine him, to discredit him. And so a lot of times, I think, when Jesus is teaching, he's teaching immediately to his disciples, but he's got his eye on the fringe. He's got his eye on the Pharisees that are just lurking right around the outskirts to kind of keep an eye on what he's saying. And he tells stories that communicate truth, but also sometimes have a deeper point that, that he needs them to hear. Because if you remember the Pharisees, their biggest criticism of Jesus, their biggest gripe, their biggest um, point of contention, um, charge against him, was that he hung out with the wrong people. He hung out with sinners. He hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes. He hung out with the unholy, the unclean, the unworthy. The ones who by their law and by their understanding should have been kept at arm's distance. And over and over Jesus challenges their understanding of that. 
And he says things like he does in the Gospels, and he reminds them it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick, right? Or, or if you really want to paraphrase that and what he's saying, it's not the self-righteous that, need, that, that are going to hear salvation. It's those who are open to it. And so if you go back one chapter in Luke 15, you kind of see this at work because Jesus tells three parables in Luke chapter 15. He tells a parable of a lost coin, he tells the parable of a lost sheep, and he tells the parable of a lost son, the prodigal son, of these whom God welcomes and God actively seeks. But these are the kind of people that the Pharisees would have said are unworthy of being sought after. And yet Jesus says they're the very people God hungers for. They're the people that he goes after. So, so you've got to kind of understand that this story, I think, is Jesus' teaching. He knows who's listening. In fact, in Luke chapter 14, we didn't read it, it says that after this teaching, the Pharisees became indignant. They became angry because, um, and they scoffed at him because they loved money. And they knew what he was getting at. They knew who he was poking. So maybe we need to be kind of poked a little this morning. So let's see if we can kind of get poked by the gospel. So, the story and its elements, fairly simple, but, but very important to spend some time with. This manager who manages the estate for a wealthy man, probably a landowner, uh, he's not good at his job. That's the paraphrase. He's just not good at his job. Whether he's dishonest, which certainly, based on the actions we know of, would give some credibility that maybe he was skimming off the top, or, or maybe he's just incompetent. It doesn't matter. The point is, the, the landowner realizes that this manager's got to go. And so he calls him in. He says, give an account for, your, for what you've done and then know, you know you're on notice. Your, your time is coming to an end. And so Jesus uses a tactic Luke talks a lot about in his parables or, or Jesus uses in his parables that we read about in Luke in that we get clued into the internal dialogue. The, the, the manager says to himself, we kind of become aware of what they're thinking. He does this in the parable of the prodigal son when the son is feeding the pigs and he says to himself, you know, I can go back to my father and, and my father's servants have more than this. Well, we get this kind of attack or, or um, uh, characteristic in this, this parable as well. The manager says to himself, uh, I'm in a world of hurt. Because um, he looks at these soft hands that have kept the books and he realizes, I'm not, I'm not equipped to dig ditches. I'm not cut out for manual labor. And, uh, and I'm accustomed to a certain way of living and, and I've got too much pride to go beg. And he realizes he's got to figure something out. He's got to pr- make provisions for himself. So he banks on, he takes advantage of, if you will, a societal norm in his time which was a a kind of an unwritten law an expectation of reciprocity meaning that it wasn't just polite to do nice things for people who did nice things to you it was absolutely expected so if um you know if i did something nice for john i was invited john in and served him dinner and 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 provided for him in a time of need it was not just hoped for, it was absolutely expected that John would have that same obligation to me in my time of need. It was quid pro quo. I do for you, you do for me. And that was a very, very important doctrine of hospitality. So he knows that if he can find some friends to take care of, they will be obligated to take care of him. So what does he do? Well, you remember the story. He calls in the debtors, those who owe his boss money. And they say, basically, how much do you owe? And let's put this in, in 
modern terms, the first guy says, I owe about $100,000. He says, you know what? Make it 50. You think that would go over well? He says, the second one, how much do you owe? Well, you know, I owe 900000 He says, make it 700000 I know my numbers are off. I think it was 900 to 450 and, and 1000 to 800 But he cuts down the debts. And in doing so, he creates an obligation. He now knows when he gets thrown out on the streets, he's got some place to go. Because this law of reciprocity, this quid pro quo, means because he's done this for them, they must do something for him. So it serves to his advantage. Now the other thing it does is it puts his owner in a real bad spot. Because what does he do when he finds out about it? I mean, he could go back and tell those debtors, nope, sorry, you owe everything that was previously promised. But keep in mind, he's probably done this for a lot of people. And he's probably the toast of the town. Probably being celebrated for his generosity, for his kindness, for his love. They're, they're, they're raising a, you know, a toast to him in all the pubs. I mean, he's the hero. So how do you go back and undo that? How do you take away the good deed? There's a, a story about Henry Ford in the 1930s went back to his ancestral homeland in Ireland and was touring and visiting Ireland. And when he was there, two trustees of a hospital there approached him and they asked him to make a donation to the hospital, which he gladly did. He said, I will donate $5,000 to the hospital. Now keep in mind, this is the 30s, so $5,000 is a lot of money. Well, the next day in the local paper, the headline proclaims, Henry Ford donates $50,000 to the hospital. Henry Ford's kind of agitated, to say the least, that his 5000 has become 50000 And he calls the trustees in and he says, what's this about? And, oh, we're sorry, Mr. Ford, we're so sorry. That was just an honest mistake. Don't worry about it. Tomorrow in the paper, we will make sure it adequately reflects that Henry Ford only donated $5,000. <laughs> yeah, so what do you do there? So according to the story, he, pr- he went through on the the $50,000 donation. But in doing so, he got to designate the plaque that went over the front door. And on that plaque was an excerpt from Matthew 25 that says this, I was a stranger and you took me in. (laughs) Now I looked for verification to see if that story was true. I can't find definitive yes or no, but the point is true. And it's the same bind that the the owner, the landowner was in. How do you undo the good deed that this manager done, even if he did it without your approval? And he realizes, man, he got me. He absolutely got me. In fact, so much so that it says he commends the shrewd manager. And Jesus says, interestingly enough, the children of this world are more savvy, more shrewd with material wealth, or in some scripture versions it says dishonest wealth, than the children of the light. And you go, what's the point? Because there seems nothing redeemable about this guy, and yet he in some ways is the hero of the story. But the key is shrewd. The key is understanding, not the actions. I don't think for a second Jesus is any way praising dishonest actions. That would be contradictory to the, to the gospel message. But he's recognizing and he's saying, 
recognize what this manager understood in that time of need was the most essential thing. And what he realized in that time, in the place, the most important thing in his life, the most important investment he could make, whether it was with his goods or somebody else's, was in relationships. It was in relationships. Notice he doesn't just steal money. He could have just cooked the books and tried to stole money. Now, maybe he'd have gotten caught, maybe he'd have gotten thrown in jail. But that would have been a temporary solution. He knew the key to living in the kingdom of this world was to be invested in people, to be invested in relationships, even if it was for self-serving purposes. So what's Jesus saying to the disciples? What's Jesus saying to us? Of course, again, he's poking. The dishonest wealth, I think, is a poke at the Pharisees. And, and it may sometimes be a poke at us in a system that sometimes favors some over others. But, but the real challenge is recognizing that what was true for the manager is true for us for different reasons. And that is that the most important thing, the way the kingdom of God is lived out, is in relationships. The way that our faith, our, we, were, we were created for a relationship with God, and that relationship is given credibility, testimony, if you will, in the way that we live with others, the way that we invest in others. And this is where we have to begin to then look at the entire testimony of the Gospels and of Jesus' life because he says to us, the children of this world are invested in the kingdoms of this world, but we are to be invested in the work of the kingdom of God. We're called to kingdom work, but it's God's kingdom. And over and over, Jesus gives us pictures of what those kind of relationships look like. And it contradicts the quid pro quo understanding of the way the world works. See, the shrewd manager, he kind of went against the social norms. You know, you didn't steal from your boss in order to accomplish something that he thought was a greater end. Well, well Jesus says we've got to be willing to buck social norms in order to accomplish the work of God's kingdom. Well, what were the social norms of the day? Well, I already told you. It was the fact that you did for people based on what they could do for you. If I had somebody in my life that couldn't reciprocate the gifts and the kindness and the love I've shown, then I wouldn't do it because the whole point was to give and to get. It was that kind of reciprocity. But Jesus over and over again says, you do for those who don't have the ability to do back for you. You care for those, even those who cannot repay your kindness and cannot meet you um, on an equal term. You're called to invest in relationships, but not with a self-serving purpose, but with a Christ-serving purpose. And so we begin to, he, he tells stories. In a couple chapters earlier in Luke, he tells of a huge banquet that, that, uh, that, that um, was held. And all the invited guests had excuses why they couldn't come. So as the banquet host says, he says, go out into the streets and get the poor, the beggars, the afflicted. Invite them in. This banquet is for them. They have no ability to reciprocate that gift, but they're invited to the table. The son and the prodigal son who squanders his dad's wealth, who by the laws of the day is now you know, kicked out of the family. He has nothing more to offer because he's taken all that he had and he's wasted it. And yet when he comes home, the father Rush to, rushes to embrace him and to welcome him home. It's over and over this model that we give not based on somebody's ability to give back, but we love 
because Christ first loved us. Because Christ gave to us his life knowing that we could never repay that gift. And so we do the same for others. So what does the kingdom of God look like? What does giving, relationship building in the kingdom of God look like? It looks like a pursuit of compassion. Being compassionate to others. It looks like caring for the hungry and the naked and the imprisoned. Matthew 25, giving to the least of these, regardless of their ability to give back. It looks like forgiveness. Forgiving those who have wronged us, even those who don't necessarily seek such forgiveness. The disciples asked Jesus, how often do we forgive? Seven times, and what does Jesus say? Seventy times seven. Just in abundance, we forgive. And that's a hard thing. What does the kingdom of God look like? It looks like a pursuit of God's spirit. It looks like a pursuit of justice and standing up for those and giving voice to those who don't have voice. Over and over again, it is this willingness to look beyond our needs to the needs of others. See, that's where the shrewd manager, he was investing in relationships, but only because they were self-serving. And, and we fall into that trap. You know, we live in a, in a world that tells us that, that take care of yourself. Look out for number one. Do the things that, that make you feel good and make you happy and serve your needs. And we all do that in some ways. I do it all the time. We fall into that trap in, in so many aspects. I, I read a, a random statistic this week. $15 billion uh, spent last year on uh, uninvasive cosmetic surgery. Over half of that was Botox, you know, just to try to look better. Now, look, if you've had Botox, I'm not judging you because I can turn that glass on me. I have not had Botox. I know that's obvious um, because, <laughs> but, but the point is, I mean, it's just, it was just an example of, of the ways that we tend to be very kind of self-serving in the way that we invest ourselves. And we have to be challenged by that. And, and maybe squirm a little bit because Jesus says, be shrewd. Invest in the things that are eternal. See, the, the shrewd manager still invested in the temporary because he invested in the things of this world. Jesus says, that's, you know, the materials where moth and rust destroy, but store up your treasures in heaven. Well, we invest in the kingdom of God when we love those and we care about those, those who maybe can never repay that, that love and that compassion. But we do it for others because Jesus has done it for us. And so in doing so, we become shrewd. We become invested in the kingdom of heaven. We become welcomed in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, what if our judgment before the Lord one day was simply based on how we took the, the wealth and the materials and the things God had given to us and we invested it in those who were unable to give a dollar back to us? Now, if you think about being judged on that, that might make you uncomfortable. It makes me really uncomfortable. But that's the challenge. Jesus says, be shrewd in pursuing the things of God and the kingdom of God in the same fashion that this shrewd manager pursued the things that served him. Different focus. Different actions. But the same kind of motivation. An investment in relationships. John D. Rockefeller, you know the name, started Standard Oil in the late 18th century, early 19th century, was one of, if not the richest man in the United States, uh, of immeasurable wealth. He, uh, he grew up in a very religious home. 
His mother and his family were Northern Baptists. He was, he was a man of faith. And, and in early in his adult life, when he was making not much money at all, he gave over half of it away to his church and to other um, ministries and service. As he grew and became wealthier, that percentage of his giving significantly decreased. In his early 50s, he was told by doctors after dealing with some illness that he, uh, he probably had no more than about a year to live. And news like that, as it would probably for any of us, caused a little reevaluation of his priorities. And he began to embrace again his faith and the generosity that he knew that had been instilled in him. And he began to give large sums of money away. He sold half of his um, stock in Standard Oil and began to become very, very philanthropic, giving to his church and to, to ministry organizations and to other um, uh, charities and, and philanthropic opportunities. Interestingly enough, as he did, he began says, to recapture the joy of his life. He began to remember how much joy he got at giving and sharing, and his health improved. And John D. Rockefeller, who they didn't expect to live to be 53, lived to be 97. When he died, he had more wealth than he had in his 50s when he started giving half of it away. And he had continued to give half of it away, starting colleges and universities and hospitals and churches. He became incredibly philanthropic. But what he found that in his giving freely, he found joy. In his giving freely, he found purpose. And he found Christ. Now, whether it's $10 million or $1. The fact is that we're called to be givers and invest in others. That is the right action with the right motivation. Doing it because Christ has called us to. It's the example of his life. And so we find that truth, that kernel of truth, that, that fruit in the middle of the thistles in this story. Jesus knew what the pursuit of the disciples' hearts needed to be. He knows what our pursuits need to be. Investments. Investments. With the things that God has entrusted to us in the lives of others who may not be able to pay us back. But God blesses those. We reap what we sow. And God blesses us when we pursue the, His kingdom. An internal investment that marries right motivations, right reasons, with right actions. Amen? Uh, let's pray. Lord, speak to us in, this mo in these moments as we come to the communion table to receive a gift from Christ that we cannot begin to repay. But you give it freely and help us to be as generous with our lives and with our resources and with our talents and with our gifts to pursue relationships, relationship with you and relationship with others as we are about the work of the kingdom, not the kingdoms of this earth, but the kingdom of God, which we're called to serve. We pray it in Christ Jesus. Amen.